What's up, everybody? Welcome to Studio Wesley Annex, the audiovisual podcast where we talk about the lectionary texts of the week. This is the second week in the season of Easter, and I'm here with some awesome people. I'm your host, Michael Yerick, by the way, and here's our old host, Derek Scott the Third. How are you doing, Derek? I'm doing quite well. Doing, even though my AC is still not working at the time of the recording, I'm doing quite well. God be praised. Oh, it's still cold here, so I I will feel that pain very shortly, I'm sure. Uh, Cam, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, Mike. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy you're here. And Neil, once again, how's it going? Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Just vibing. Sweet. We're all we're all vibing. We're all chill. It's the second week of Easter. By this time, we've all chilled out from the pleasures of working at churches on on easter uh it is a bro fest is what derek said in the chat uh incredible uh derek do you want to open us in prayer before we get rolling i am happy to friends let's pray together great god god of the resurrection god of new life we give you praise for all that you're doing and i thank you for this space that we get to just talk about the scriptures uh for this week, and we're thank we thank we're thankful for it. Thankful for these texts, and thankful for just a chance to listen to each other and to hear what what is inspiring us, what is challenging us, what is getting to us. And so we just ask that you would um, just be so present in our conversation, and even those who may be watching or listening, that they would experience your presence and your love, even as we discuss these texts today. We love you in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, Derek. Um, and Cam, you have the you have the first text, New Testament. Are you ready? I sure am, Mike. Let's get into it. So my what? text for the week is First Peter verses chapter one, verses three through nine. Um, it begins with all of the praise and adoration that is um, sort of a genre convention of uh, Jewish blessings. So we begin with blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. So a whole bunch of really positive stuff, but we continue into verse six and we sort of, I, I, we get to I, what is to my mind, the, the meat of this section, which is, this is verse six. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the, the text seems to me to be suggesting that the genuineness of our faith is in some ways dependent upon our suffering various trials. And I'll tell you why this caught my attention. It caught my attention because when I was in seminary, I took a class on um, theodicy and pastoral care. Theodicy is a fancy word that just means um, studying the problem of evil. And uh, our classic 
responses to the problem of evil. The problem of evil being, um, if God is good, then why all of this hurt? Why all of this suffering? Why all of this struggle? And then our responses to that question are our theodicies, the reasons that we give for the reality of deep and true suffering in our world. So I took a class on pastoral care in the midst of um, responses to the problem of evil. And what I learned is that there are a bunch of different responses. And one of them is called soul-making, soul-making theodicy. And soul-making theodicy, you may be familiar with. It's the theodicy that says that our souls, our spirits, the authenticity of our faith grows in proportion to our suffering. One of the things that I learned from my pastoral care and theodicy class is that no theodicy totally resolves the problem. Each of our responses to the problem of evil have pros and are also endowed with cons, with weaknesses. And when we look at a text like 1 Peter verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, we run into, I think, a soul-making theodicy. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had, you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. My immediate bodily response to that is, why? Why is it necessary for uh, the people of God, for people generally, to suffer? And is it true that the authenticity of our faith, as Peter seems to be suggesting, is dependent upon the trials that we have sort of made it out through? Um, and when I think about that, I remember uh, popular phrases like, for example, I think a phrase coined by Valerie Carr, she says, uh, may we know that the darkness or the suffering that we're experiencing is not the darkness of the tomb, but rather the darkness of the womb that gives new life. Um, and maybe that's what uh, Peter is getting at in this post-Easter text, that after three days of darkness, we're born into new life. Um, so that's what I've got this morning. Just give him a little, little golf clap because that was quite brilliant, Cameron. Um, I, if there's any text, any book of the New Testament that I struggle with, it's the letters from Peter, um, because they just seem so binary, black and white, and sometimes just really harsh. <laughs> um, but I, I often reflect on the ways that you know when these letters were being written. The writers were not thinking people for the next 2,000 plus years are not going to only be reading this letter, but they're going to ascribe this letter with sacredness and literally coming from the mouth of God. <laughs> and so it helps me sort of step back a minute and think about the writer of this letter, which we historically don't believe it's actually Peter, but in the tradition of Peter, um, this, this human I think it's just trying to say, like, I get it, man. Like, we're suffering because we decided to follow Jesus. 
And that suffering matters. That suffering matters both to the fact that you're experiencing it, but also matters in the context of our faith in Jesus. That, And this is pinging from some stuff that Paul says, in Jesus, nothing is lost. That even our suffering, even our suffering that is a function of our privilege, is somehow being gathered up and used, as you were saying, Cam, to make our souls these beautiful um, vessels of holiness for the sake of Jesus in this world. And and so I, I do think that we often have to wrestle with the reality of suffering and even the the reality that there is so much suffering that is so not necessary. Like we don't have to <laughs> have it like this, you know? Um, and yet it is the reality. And so how does our true lived experience and reality then connect with, inform, and invest in our spiritual development? So I love Cameron that you connected the the development of our souls. What was the term that you used? Because um, uh, not the Odyssey, I know about that, but you used the, the term soul. around soul making. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love that. I've not heard this yet because I haven't been to seminary. Uh, <laughs> but I love this connection. And I think it's really, really helpful as we consider the way suffering happens, even as we've made decisions to follow the risen Jesus. Yeah, I love all of that. Yeah, suffering has always like been my, <clears throat> I guess especially lately, it's been a thing I'm thinking about a lot, you know, where it's just, yeah, I mean, I guess like a lot of people, I always just find myself asking like, why, you know, like, why does this like need to happen? And particularly since, I don't know, like I've just had a lot going on for the last three months. And then for CCW, like we took a trip to Washington, D.C. And so then we went through the African-American History Museum and then went through the Holocaust Museum, like right after that. And then there's a whole thing, you know, this church I went to yesterday. And so like suffering and the idea of it has become, well, not even just the idea, the reality of it is just like gotten to the forefront uh, of my mind. Um you know, on the notion of saying, like, you know, one of the great arguments for, like, against, I guess, you know, against God. I thought you were going to reference this, Cameron, because you started to quote half of it, essentially. But, you know, people often say, like, well, if God is all-powerful, then God cannot be all-good. Then if God is all-good, he cannot be all-powerful in relation to these things, you know? Because it's like he's either just letting it happen or can't do anything about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like a tough spot to find oneself in but um i loved everything you said about like soul making and stuff like that i had also never heard the term uh, either but very cool yeah i i, I just love the tomb the tomb versus womb imagery that you said because that is like the entirety of easter for me i can't help but think when we like talk about suffering all i like picture are like i i've come in contact with a lot of like believers in my life that approach me with this just sort of like everything in my life is perfect. Even when things are bad, life is still perfect because I'm a Christian and God loves me. And like, I do, that does always hit me in like a weird way. I'm like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel right. And I don't say that to like, um, 
dissuade anybody who's like putting themselves in that posture to try to like, um, you know, convince themselves otherwise or put themselves in a posture to try to like, can, you know, I don't want to say convince themselves, but, you know, like kind of force themselves into that mindset. Cause I, I understand that, but I, I don't know. It's definitely sort of a, a thing that I'm, I'm constantly working on, on balancing whether it's um, yeah. Whether it's, I mean, I just think that sometimes I read verses like this and I'm like, yeah, suffering. Oh, why? And then I read the happy verses and I'm like, well, why is it happy? Because I'm suffering, you know? And then it's like, well, now I'm just being cynical and I'm, <laughs> and I'm not liking anything, but uh, I don't know. That's neither here nor there. Uh, yes. This is really great stuff. I appreciate uh, everything everybody said here on all this. Um, before we move into what should be the old Testament text, Derek, I tried explaining on the last episode why the Old Testament text is coming from the New Testament. And I feel like you might do a little bit of a better job than I did. Do you want to explain that to us? I'll give us just a little bit. Um, there's probably all kinds of depth to what I'm going to say. I'm just going to give us a very quick and dirty A, B plus C, A plus B equals C kind of answer. Um, historically, during the season of Eastertide, um, we have used an Acts text um, for the Old Testament text or the second reading, um, which is sometimes what it's often referred to. Actually, sometimes it's even referred to as the first reading because it's Old Testament. But we've often used an Acts text instead of a text directly out of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And I think a lot of it has to do with it's Eastertide. Um, and we are really focused on the risen Jesus, the testimonies of the risen Jesus, and the ways that that testimony really informs um, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the church, how we think about God. So um, what one thing that is really interesting, though, is usually these Acts texts are pointing to something, reminding us of something that we heard in the Old Testament. And so you want to be listening for when we're reading these these these. Old Testament, Old Testament text <laughs> in, in during the season of Easter tide. We're gonna when we get on the other side of Pentecost, we'll go back to reading uh, a text out of the Old Testament. But during the season, we want to be listening for the ways that the Acts text is echoing, reminding, hat tipping, and pointing back to a text from the Old Testament. So hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Thank you so much. Way better than what I, how I tried. But um, okay, so Neil, all that being said, do you want to take us into Acts 2? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Acts 2, 14, comma, 22 through 32. Um, <coughs> goodness me. I'm okay, I swear. Uh, yeah, so... This passage, you know, in particular for me, is just like, uh, yeah, it's just sort of a, how, how can I put it? I'm once again struggling for words. It's a little too early for me, but that's fine. It's like a bit of a declaration, you know, because he's like, in verse 22, you know, in particular starts off, fellow Israelites, listen to these words, right? Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders, and signs. Like, it's just a declaration of like, yeah, Jesus is exactly who he says he is, done exactly what he said he was going to do. God did what he said he was going to do. He raised him up. He's like, in a way, it feels like there's almost an element of like, you know, how can you not believe this in a way, you know? Because he's like, 
it's 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 proven you know he said he almost sounds like a scientist right where they're like explaining gravity to somebody it's like that's just how it is like what do you mean it, it has a sort of like yeah just like a sort of like uh like he's like he's like he's proving something behind it you know and he's letting all these people like know it's like this is this is who jesus is you know and it's like all these miracles all these things all of this happened. And then, you know, down in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. We are all witnesses to that fact. And, um, you know, I think I, the, the stuff that I love about this where it's just, I mean, this is certain, like, he's just very, he's very adamant about it. You know, the text is very, like, adamant in where it stands. He's like, it's very firm. It's very resolute, almost in a defiant way, but like defiance out of love where it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to tell you all these things that did happen. Most certainly did happen that people are witnesses to. And I'm going to tell you about, you know, the things God did and, you know, think good things that like, you know, God did for me and the miracles with which like Jesus did. And like, I'm, I'm going to stand here and like tell you about them. Cause like, he's like, they, 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 they happened. They happened. And yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I just, uh, I, I really like just how, I don't know. It's uh, it's, it's hard to put into words. It's like my passage last time where I'm like, I have an easier time. Ex like I know how it makes me feel, but then there's the, there's, there's, then there's the trouble of like trying to put those feelings in the words because language is just reductive by nature. And so I don't know. It's difficult, but uh, yeah, I just I just love the the firmness, uh, but also like the joy that is behind it as well. You know, it's like there's a lot of exclamation marks and whatnot, and I just imagine like you know Paul being very happy. It's like listen to these words. It's like you gotta hear this, guys. He's almost like the town crier in a way. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble now, but yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I, I really appreciated, Neil, that you called to attention Paul's exultant witness, um, because I think that that is one of Paul's main focuses. I mean, I, that's a huge that's a huge claim. But Paul, Paul is concerned about how our identity in Christ influences our witness to the world. Um, and so we see Paul, like, I think we see Paul in this Acts text trying to embody that witness. Um, and then in Paul's proclamation of the risen Christ, um, I think that we, we see this sort of motif of like, so Christ uh, died and rose again, so too are we called to die and rise again. And that's like sort of where his effusiveness is coming from. And what does that mean? It means um, that, like Christ, for the sake of the world, we too are called to be handed over in service. Like Christ, we are called in pursuit of justice. Like, like Christ, we're called to costly love for our enemies and sent to be poured out rather than to acquire. Um, so, yeah, I, like I feel myself sort of getting worked up in witness to what our call is as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting juxtaposing this this like town crier speech as as Neil called it with with the one we had from I think it was Peter in the last episode, um, <clears throat> where whereas like Peter's giving this 
sort of speech where I felt like part of it was him affirming himself of this new information now that this has happened. Whereas this one feels a lot more like now, now I got this, like I, I got this, I feel confident and I need other people to hear it also. And th that, that level of conviction following like, yeah, I mean, somebody you literally experiencing somebody like raised from the dead, it obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I'm very, I'm very jazzed by that. I, that's all I'm going to say. So, just quickly, it's actually Peter, but y'all are correct in literally everything that you're saying. It's it just the day it's and 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 in Acts, it's like you you you're like not sure. Like if this Paul is this Peter, Acts gets really confusing. But everything you're saying about Peter is spot on. I mean, this town crier idea actually comes, and I love it that that's what you pulled out, Neil, because that actually is this comparison to the Peter who, um, when asked if he was. If he knew who Jesus was, he's like, no, I don't know. I don't know him. Three times, like, I don't know him. You know, like, so you have that guy, the same guy who's now this guy standing in the middle, in the middle of the town square, saying, "Y'all, let's talk about Jesus." <laughs> um, and I'll just put an asterisk here because we'll talk about it in a little bit. He quotes from the Old Testament. And I'll just read just a little bit of verse 31. Having seen this beforehand, David spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to the grave. This comes out of Psalm 16, which we're going to talk about in a second, that he wasn't abandoned to the grave, nor did his body experience decay. And so again, this Acts text, even though it's an Acts, it's pointing to these other texts from their history. And, and Peter is bringing his history with him and trying to interpret his history through the reality of what he's experienced in Jesus. And that town crier image is perfect. I love it. Yeah, great. Uh, well, now is when the town crier would appear and tell us it's time for a break. So we'll talk to you soon. After a brief discussion on pajama pants and whether or not they deserve to be worn or not when sleeping, Derek is going to take us into Psalms 16. Wow. I just, um, I didn't think we were going to like mention that to the whole world, but cool, cool. Pajama pants. We talked about it during the break. All right. Psalm 16. <laughs> Let me remind us again that the Acts text pointed to this psalm. And many of us who are in, in who are in the way of Jesus, who are following Jesus in the Christian tradition, we look at psalms like this and we hear images, we read images that remind us of Jesus. We're not quite sure that David was actually thinking about the Messiah when he wrote these words, if he wrote these words, is definitely in David's tradition, David, David's stream of consciousness for sure. But Peter, 
seems to think, and this is what he said in verse 31 of Acts uh, chapter 2, that David was pointing to the resurrection of Christ that David saw. So this is that's Peter interpreting, i.e. bringing the text into his experience. And so just want to name that. And, and act, oh, sorry, Psalm 16, it is a Psalm of David, and it's a very specific Psalm of David. Um, but I do remind us there, there are images that sort of give us sort of the... Um, what, what some of us would say would be sort of these precursors um, pointing us to the risen Christ. That is that is in there. I want to look at one more, another part of it though. And it's around verses three through six. I'm going to just do this really quickly. I just, I thought it was just awesome. And so I wanted to share it. Um, verse three, it says this, now as for the holy ones, and literally in my translation puts holy ones in quotations. Um, now as far as the holy ones in the land and the magnificent ones that I was so happy about. It's going to turn in verse four, let their suffering increase because they hurried after a different God. We just need to like stop for a minute and ask some interesting questions about what's happening, particularly in this Psalm. And I think something's happening to David, actually. There's this turning of David that is happening in this psalm where he is about to make some commitments for himself. And sometimes when we make certain commitments for our own lives, it creates a distance between people we used to hang with. So there's, um, in, in the church I grew up in, in the Black church, we often have this image of when you get saved, you leave this old life behind. And there's even a song we used to sing, I moved from my old house and I moved from my old friends. I moved from my old way of life. And all of a sudden now, there is this tension between where I am now because I am now saved, I am now a follower of Jesus, and where I used to be. And not just the where I used to be, but who I used to be, where I used to be with. Who I used to be with, where I used to be. And sometimes in that process, there's this tension that I have moved on. And humans being humans, when a person leaves the group and everybody else is like, why'd you do that? Why'd you, where you at? And like that person who's left the group kind of turns around. You've never done this, but I've done this. They turn around, they're like, I moved from my old house, y'all. I moved from my old friends. I moved from my old way of life. And, and, And then, and then, we feel a bit of suffering sometimes because our old friends don't understand the decisions that we've made and therefore we don't hang out as much with them. And so then we're like isolated by ourselves because we've made these decisions. I hope I'm, I, I'm speaking of my own life in some respects. Um, and it's not just um, a decision for Christ though. That's, you know, often what we're talking about in this podcast, but even sometimes it's a, it's a decision to live in truth. Um, when I came out, it's a decision. Uh, that was a decision to be who God made me to be as far as I understood. And, and that meant that I moved from some things and had to go into a different place. My old way of life was left behind and I, I, I went to a new place. And sometimes, y'all, 
um, and again, coming out's not the only one, right? Like it's it's making a clear declaration of where you are politically, even though the people that raised you disagree. Or it's even something much more practical of uh, things like I left Jacksonville and I moved to Orlando or Cincinnati, and the rest of us in Jacksonville's like, why you had to move? And you're like. Because, like, I got a new life and I'm doing this thing over here. And like, this is a little, little, little saltiness between us, right? And so I think that's kind of what's happening in Psalm 16, leads to these couple of verses. There's this distance that David is trying to put words to. He goes on to say in verse 4, I won't participate in their blood offerings. I won't let their names cross my lips. I mean, I have moved on. I am no longer where I used to be. I don't even know who these people are. And then verse five and six, I think it's really, really beautiful. And I just want to lift those up. You, Lord, are my portion, my cup. You control my destiny. The property lines have fallen beautifully for me. Yes, I have a lovely home. And this is where I'm going to go back to the very specific image of making a decision towards Christ in the ways that that sometimes means that we leave some things behind. And I, 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 that's a part of the journey of a Christ follower. We'd like it to be a little easier than that. We'd like it to be something where I got saved, I came to Christ, I decided to be on a journey towards Christ, I decided to take the Bible more seriously than I used to. Uh, you know, These decisions that we make that sometimes we call getting saved. And I just wanna, I, I wanna say that this is an important decision that one might make to say, I'm not just looking into the scriptures because I find them fascinating, there's something about the risen Christ that has pulled at my heart. And I don't want it to just be a detail about my life. I'm actually working to make it the center of my life. And when that happens, there is a distance that at times gets created, particularly with those who don't get that, who don't get going to church on a regular basis, who don't get reading the Bible on a regular basis, who don't even get praying, praying to a God that none of us can see and most of us can't hear. And those of us who can hear need to be really, really careful about us talking about that we can hear that God because um, that 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 also is, is a delicate space. We're, we're literally doing some things that a lot of people around the world are like, really? And we can get salty about that. We can feel salty about that. That's a real feeling. That's not where we should stay. But we can feel salty when our old friends, and I don't, think we always, they always have to be old friends. But when our old friends are like, really? You're praying now? You going to Bible study? What? What? We, we'll feel salty about those questions. But I think it really comes to this place. And again, first of all, we'll just read it again, where we've, we're saying, you, Lord, are my portion, my cup. You control my destiny. And that is a confession of faith, my friends. It's a confession of offering ourselves to the God that we believe has rescued us, that is healing us, that is bringing meaning to our lives. And it is a part of that journey where we're trying to figure out and work out the distance that is now created because we are following the risen Christ while others may not be. And so I just want to name that, yeah, this is tough. It is tough to make that decision and the things that often the things we often leave behind because of that decision to be in the way of Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a person who takes the story and life of Jesus seriously. And it can feel like suffering. I don't need to tie this up in a nice bow. It can feel like suffering, which I think is probably the theme of today's episode. 
But it really does come down to that confession of verse five. I just want to read it one more time. This is in the midst of the distance between old friends. This is in the midst of suffering we might ex experience because we've made a decision. This is in the midst of moving from an old life to a new life. You, Lord, are my portion. You're my cup. You control my destiny. It's a part of the journey of being a disciple. Okay, that's all I got. Yeah, Derek, I love the way you, I love the way you told this because you you started off talking about this these like life changes as this like very exciting like I'm gonna do this thing I'm gonna go do it I'm gonna and then I'm, you know things are gonna happen because of it and then naturally like the verses following that to me read as this like sort of self assurance thing because when we make those big changes it starts off with this like I'm making a big change I'm so excited it's gonna be great and you do put blinders on to like the ramifications of some of that. And then after you're in it for like a month or a couple of weeks or whatever, then it's the reality starts to hit. And then that's when you do need that reassurance. And I, and I, I love that you kind of um, ordered, ordered the, the scripture in that same way. It's like, I'm excited. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And now I need the reassurance and the reassurance and the reassurance. And I do think a lot of scripture does read as that self-assurance and that reassurance to me, especially things like this, where it's like, my God won't abandon me. My God won't abandon me. My God won't abandon me. Right. And, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think having that, that little bit of like unsure nature kind of strengthens scripture a lot of the times for me too, because these people are needing that reassurance. And then we are in fact treating the Bible as a place where we can go to like fulfill that for ourselves. So anyways, I just wanted to voice all that. I thought that was really cool. So yeah, we're, we're doing a sermon series at First United Methodist Church of Orlando, where I work, um, on vices and virtues. And the last vice versus virtue that we discussed was the vice of envy and the virtue of charity. And when we were talking about envy, we, we hit a little bit on what you mentioned, Derek, about this sort of suffering that can accompany um, transition and change of identity and differences in value that might follow from um, religious conviction following Jesus Christ. Uh, because it is that when, when we choose to follow Jesus, we're choosing values that are distinct from some of the values of the community that we live in. And that can produce, I think, uh, and has produced in my life, envy. Like, I, wow, I really wish that I would have graduated from undergrad and gotten a job and uh, had enough money in the bank to um, purchase a house at 34, like some of my friends. But I chose to go to seminary, and now I'm making a church salary, and I live in a 400-square-foot apartment. And it's because of the choices that I've made. And sometimes I wonder, and it feels like suffering, like, did I make a wrong choice here. Um, but when, when I return to why I made those choices, I'm reminded of a prayer by a theologian named Walter Brueggemann um, that is supposed to sort of endow us with the courage necessary to continue with our choices, even though they might sort of feel like swimming upstream in the community that we live in. Um, and it reads, Good, hard, demanding, generous God, we do not ask to be dazzled, 
we do not ask to be made smooth in success, which is sometimes what I want. I want to be made smooth in success, to feel the ease and the comfort that I see with envy some of my friends seemingly living with. We ask rather, Brueggemann continues, for courage to be faithful, to submit our privilege and entitlement to you before it is too late. It is your holiness that subverts our best convictions. And so we submit to your haunting as best we can, haunted as was Jesus by purposes beyond his own. Which Walter seems to be suggesting too that Jesus suffered in Jesus's pursuit of his own way. So we're not alone in that sort of suffering. Yeah. God, yeah. No, I love... I love all this. There, there's something about the reassurance that is almost necessary. Well, not even almost. That just like is necessary with anything regarding any kind of faith in anything. Because you know the problem, not a problem, but like, what was it? There's a quote I had for it. It was another pop culture reference, and I've lost out on it. You know, you could I could have increased my pop culture reference counter. Anyway. But yeah, it's like faith is just, you know, it's it's not about things we know, right? It's things that we don't know. It's things that like we believe or would like to believe. We don't always, it's like, like, you know, like we're saying, like when you make a decision, you're like, I'm here, I'm here. And then it's like, I need the assurance to know that this is still like the right thing to do and that I am like on the right path. And that's a tough one to be on because I, I find myself doing that a lot, you know, where I'm making a decision and I'm like, is this for me? Like, like, is this the right thing? Is this where I'm actually supposed to be? Right. Because, you know, with faith, you do need some kind of like reassurance, just like constantly because you don't know. It's not some, it's not always like some set in stone thing. And sometimes God is very, very obvious with you know reassurance and telling you what to do and sometimes it's quite annoying as well um but yeah i don't know just the constant reassurance is both it's 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 necessary and it's uplifting and sometimes it's that but there's also a certain pain in it as well i love you guys so much uh that doesn't even need a transition. I'm just going to start talking about John chapter 20 now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. This uh, covers a couple different things, most uh, notably probably the, the Doubting Thomas story. Um, uh, so just as before I get real, I'm gonna, this is going to be in two parts. One part that I have nothing to say about because I don't feel equipped to say about it, and then another thing I'll actually go into discussion on. Um, first verse I'm going to pull out is the one that I'm like, cool. Uh, verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, and that's just kind of my verse to be like, holy crap, that's, that's like big. And I would love to hear somebody with more theological background to talk about that than me, because that's like, it's, I, I just feel like it's a very big statement for Jesus to say, like, you've received the Holy Spirit, um, let you forgive sin, forgive the sins that you think should be forgiven, and if not, then they're not. That's big. I'm not actually going to talk about that. I just wanted to point it out. 
I'm going to talk about the doubting Thomas section of this of this um, of this chunk of verses, if you will. Uh, so I'll, I'll just read you this. Um, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Uh, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." Then he said to Thomas, "Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe." Thomas said to him, "My Lord and my God." Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm just going to read that again. Jesus's response, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, so on my impulse when reading Jesus's response here, and I think that impulse comes from um, a lot of times I have heard the story, at least growing up in childhood, I, I like there sometimes almost feels a little bit of pettiness in Jesus's voice. And I don't, I like recognize that that's a way of reading this, right? Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen and not believed, right? It's this total like, like, uh, okay. Um, uh, but ultimately I wonder if instead what Jesus is truly trying to say, um, it involves sincerity to both. So instead of there being this like sort of subtle jab at the fact that Thomas needed more, I actually, I actually do think that there's a world where Jesus is, is bringing validity to both of these statements. So he says to Thomas very sincerely, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he turns to his disciple, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And those are both two valid statements that can live together. Um, because I do think Jesus appreciates every step of the journey that people walk on right no matter what you need i do think jesus is there and he and with thomas he's like willing to show you and give you what you need right he like lets thomas put his fingers here feel his hands do all these things because that's what thomas needs in his journey right now maybe down the line thomas won't need as much proof but right now in this moment he needs that and jesus is willing to provide that for him um so yeah, I don't think that Jesus is discrediting or disowning anybody who needs evidence or proof. I think he's just trying to take this time to highlight to Thomas, um, specifically like through his comment to everybody else or who have seen and who have not seen and believed. I think he's just trying to highlight that the the gospel gives us the greatest reason to hope. Right, this resurrection of death that is the biggest reason imaginable for us to have hope that the things we hear are true, even when we may not have the evidence to them. Um, I think he's actually strengthening Thomas by supplying him what he needs. Like the reason he's doubting, I think Jesus is helping him see the, helping him see why it's possible, why he may not need as much proof. Right. I think it's a learning experience. It makes me think of this, this like article that I was reading the other day. It's called the danger of cynical Christianity, an urgent message for church leaders. That was the, the article that I read. And I just, I'm just going to pull this chunk real quick. Cause I thought it was strong. Um, it says, we don't just cling to an intellectual claim or proposition. Our hope isn't based on an emotion or a feeling. It lives in a person who beat death itself and who loves us deeply enough to literally go through hell to rescue us. Because hope is anchored in the resurrection, it is resilient. It can withstand a thousand setbacks. It can outmaneuver 10,000 broken hearts, um, which I, I just think is amazing. Um, and I, I th I'm sorry, this is where my wording is going to get a little funky, but I, I do think Jesus is, is 
honoring where Thomas is on his journey and saying, yes, I, re- I recognize that you need more. And then he's turning to the rest of the, the followers and saying, you're blessed because you saw and didn't believe. And he's turning to them and saying that because he's trying to show Thomas this exact notion. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like the, the resurrection and living through uh, like a person who beat death itself this this is the reason that these people are able to and i get that you don't you don't have that right now and that's totally okay i'm just also showing you the opposite end of the spectrum so that maybe that can like start manifesting itself in you um i hope that makes sense i'm just gonna leave it there because i don't want to beat it to death but uh i'd love to hear what you guys have to say to that so uh oh so much I loved about what you just brought, Michael. But I'm going to go to what you asked for in the beginning. And someone, uh, you, I, I felt like you were like pointing at me without pointing at me um, when you started out uh, around around verse 19 of John chapter 20. Uh, let me just say this piece. I'm not going to go there, but yeah, in a lot of Bibles, uh, 19 through 23 are sort of sectioned, and then 24 starts a new section. But when John wrote this gospel. There were no verses and numbers. So these two stories were right up next to each other. And that should create some beautiful dissonance that some of us should be wrestling with. That even though Thomas wasn't there when Jesus breathed on the disciples, I do think that he still gets in on that breath. And this this guy who's doubting is also the one that gets to forgive sins or not forgive them. So that's just the whole moment there. But What's happening there in those first few verses of the text this week, the gospel text? Okay, there's so much happening there. There's so much theological and ecclesiastical significance to these words because what we see is that this is part of Jesus now calling the disciples to take all that they've been given and go do something with it. He is breathing on them. In some respects, he's he's endorsing them. He is giving them the same spirit, breath, pneuma, ruach. These are Hebrew and Greek words for the word spirit, breath. He is breathing on them, giving them the spirit that was given to him. And as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. I'm sending you out. And here's what you got to go out and do. You got to... You got to bring some judgments. And this is hard. This is hard to imagine that Jesus would be saying to his disciples, you you need to to call some balls and strikes. And we got to be careful with this, man. Like, we got to be careful with what's happening here. We got to balance this text with a bunch of other texts that are about the call being sent out being people who um, are are making choices about what is good versus what is not good. But that's definitely something that's happening here. And it's weighty. Later on um, in John, Jesus is going to look at Peter and he's going to tell him, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, tend my lambs. I mean, that's a, these are, it's a message to Peter, but we believe that when Jesus is talking to Peter, he's kind of talking to us too. And so this isn't about disciples rolling around the world and and like, whoa, be be judge be judges now. But it is about disciples living in the power of the resurrection, receiving the same spirit that was on Jesus, doing the kind of forgiving and the kind of uh, challenging that Jesus did. 
But it's definitely, there's there's a part of this that is, I'm sending you because God sent me. Now, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven and whatever sins you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. Got to be careful with it, especially when you got a dude like Thomas who has, who is being given this call, but it's definitely there. And it's a lot, lots of theological, ecclesiastical, and probably justice implications of this text. I'll stop there. Yeah, I, um, I always, I've always like sort of had this belief that like, for me, uh, Thomas is one of the least appreciated because in a way we only, we only sort of like know him for this. I mean, like, obviously like there's more lore to Thomas, right? But you know, whenever it says Thomas, or even if you meet someone named Thomas, everyone just somehow knows like, it's like, oh, doubting Thomas, right? Like it's just somehow in like the, the, the zeitgeist, right? And just all of our brains and stuff. It's, uh. Yeah, because I, uh, what you know, for me growing up in like a more evangelical space, right? Like we, in in a lot of ways, our questions were somewhat deterred. Um, whenever we began to doubt things or doubt God or like anything like that, you know, they would just they would just quote some random vague out of context scripture at you, and that that would be that would be your answer or whatever, or they just tell you to pray about it. You know, it's like, but I don't, I never thought that there was anything wrong with saying like, it's like, nah, I'm not going to believe it until like, you know, I see the holes and holes in his hands and stuff, because that is a natural reaction. If someone told you that one of your best buds had died and is now back, I don't care if I've seen that best bud, like, you know, feed the 5,000. I'm still asking myself, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, multiplying fish it's like like yeah sure that's something right that's that's pretty wild but like you know back from the dead like come on man you know particularly after you watch the poor guy get tortured and you know whipped and whatnot it's like that's that's not something easy to come back from i'd like i'd rather be, like you know, i'll believe that you multiplied some fish somehow right but like you know like but the doubt is just like a natural thing and it's just <coughs> excuse me but yeah, like the doubt is the doubt is just like a natural thing, you know. It's like we as humans are programmed pretty much to just ask questions of ourselves and each other and the universe at large, you know. Um, so yeah, I've always I've always really appreciated Thomas as a character, um, and I've appreciated everything, all of the all of the many many words that have been said so far and the many words that'll be said afterwards. So uh, while Derek was speaking, I was doing some of this action, like, hmm, hmm, I wonder. And it, I, I just have to laugh at myself because when I was in undergrad, I was an English lit major and I started doing this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, this sort of action mm -hmm, as a sort of parody of my English lit professors who like when they had a deep thought, they'd be like, mm, mm-hmm. And now I almost unconsciously do it when I myself am like, hmm, yeah, hmm. So in the chat, Derek, I think Derek saw me going like this while he was speaking. And he said he loves it when he sees that I have a question for him. And I don't, I actually, I wasn't doing this because I had a question for Derek. I was doing it in agreement. I think it's, it's always bold to say, I think it's bold to say that um, 
sometimes Jesus asks us to make judgments. Um, and I was doing this because I, I think like I was just thinking of how practical that can be and how judgment our connotations for the word judgment are so strong and sort of tend towards negativity. Um, but when I hear, when I heard judgment in the context of this text, uh, what I heard was discernment. Uh, we, we are called to discernment of our lives and to witness of Jesus's life. And I think that what we see with Thomas is uh, an act of discernment. Um, he says, I need to see uh, the whole, I need to see the physical body of Jesus. Um, and sometimes I think that that's what our discernment looks like. And I think that that is, uh, I think that that's okay. And, and we see, uh, I'm so grateful that Thomas is a figure in our gospel because it reminds us again that uh, we're not alone when in our discernment or our judgment we say, I need to see something. God, that's great. God, that's so good. That's so good. I'm also really, really like laughing at the people that are just listening to this via audio and they just hear Cam going, yeah, I did this. And then I did this and everybody's at home like, what did he do? I don't know. <laughs> Forgot that there was an audio component as well. <laughs> no, it's yeah. my favorite. Yeah. Just uh, imagine, just imagine Cam doing this. And then this. And then this. And but then dude, this. And then when he does this. That's <laughs> wow. Wow. My, Mike's going to be on voiceover and it's like, <laughs> he's putting his finger up to his lips. One solitary finger. Now he's pressing his hands together. <laughs> He's ruminating. He's ruminating. He's ruminating. I love, I love it. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, yeah, no. Thank you guys so much for all this. Um, Cam, do you feel like closing us in prayer? Yeah, sure. Um, let's pray. God, who is uh, always with us, uh, even when it seems... Like, you can't be. Even when we ask, where are you in the midst of uh, our suffering? In the midst of our discernment? In the midst of our envy for lives that are not our own? We're grateful that you, you come to us, God, as Emmanuel, God with us in the person of Jesus, and that you continue to show up to this day when we cry out like Thomas, I need to see something. So may we see something, Lord. May we see you at work in our lives and in the work of our communities, and may we be emboldened to witness of your love, remembering that our witness is indeed influenced by the Easter event that out of the tomb comes the womb of new life and that we do indeed have new identities in you and we have courage and power and faith. Bless and keep us as we continue to put one foot in front of the other in the direction of your kingdom. We pray all of this in Christ's name. 
Neil, thank you as always. Derek, we're happy to have you back. Cam, whether you're doing this or this, we're so happy that you're here. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, this has been Studio Wesley Annex, our second week of the Easter time. Until next time, bye, y'all. Bye.